Hello and welcome to another episode of the Ice Cream for Everyone podcast. This is Willem Vanderhorst, your host for the show. This is going to be the last episode of the year 2018, third season of the Ice Cream for Everyone podcast. Admittedly, slightly uh, slow season, but we're finishing with a really fantastic uh, interview. I was excited to talk to Jamie Stegmeier. Jamie Stegmeier is an award-winning designer, game designer, board game designer in particular. Uh, he is the owner of Stonemeyer Games. Uh, so the publishing company that publishes all the games he designs and he also works with other designers in conjunction. He's been a lot of different podcasts. Uh, he's particularly known for a game called Scythe. Scythe won the Origins Award for Best Board Game in 2016. Uh, it's one of the biggest award conventions uh, available. And uh, I played first Viticulture. Viticulture, I uh, got some for my brother actually for Christmas last year. And it's a... Um, what's called a worker placement game. So a work in a worker placement board game, if, if, if you don't know that, it, you typically have a number of tokens or people and all the different players have tasks to do. So in this particular game, you're making wine, you're a winemaker, and you have a lot of different things that you have to get done to be able to make your wine, but you only have so many different workers who can do so many tasks. And if one other player takes a spot that you wanted, you kind of like you might be barred from doing that action, and it might cost you more. So that's the principle. Scythe is a little bit different. It's a strategy game with a very compelling visual style from a Polish artist, if I remember correctly. Uh, and this is more of an it's called an engine building game. So there's a lot of different. So it's strategic, and there's a lot of different ways to get to victory. And it's difficult to track down exactly where people are at, or at least with the level of experience that I have of the game so far. Uh, it is a fantastic experience with Jamie. I really love his videos. I love that he puts, uh, he's so dedicated to sharing and to sharing his process and to, uh, sharing everything he's doing with the whole community. Uh, the website, Stonemeyer Games, I highly recommend. There's a, tons of information about game design, about crowdfunding projects through Kickstarter, uh, even about the, the way that the business operates, what Jamie believes in. Uh, I'll read you the mission statement so you can find the mission statement of the of the company, for example, which I really love. Uh, Stonemeyer Games, their mission statement, statement, sorry. We strive to create memorable, beautiful, fun games that engage and delight gamers worldwide. We hope that our games capture the imaginations of experienced gamers and new gamers alike. We also seek to add value to our fellow creators and backers in a way that extends beyond board games by sharing our crowdfunding and entrepreneurial successes, mistakes, and insights. And then they have a whole list of guiding principles, 12 tenets of board game design. I'm not going to go through everything, but just to say, I was really excited to talk to Jamie and we had a fantastic conversation about board game design. Uh, I admit uh, I was a little bit, even though I had prepared for this interview and I was really looking forward to it, I think, I don't know if it was something about that day, uh, not feeling great just before the interview, but I felt like I had a hard time finding my uh, words and formulating the questions I wanted to ask, partly maybe because I went off book and I just you know didn't exactly ask the questions I had in mind in the first place. We just let the go the conversation go. I don't think it's a problem or anything, but this is just me talking about and thinking about how do I keep improving my style, my conv conversational and interviewing style for the podcast. So yeah. So that's something I'm thinking about. Anyway, fantastic conversation we had about playtesting. And I'm starting to see uh, similarities and differences with other worlds of designing creative industries and what the game design industry 
can be bringing to other types of design. So, for example, in design agencies and advertising uh, in the tech industry in the first place, we talk about a lot about iterative process and how to be more agile and how to rather than trying to tie everything down, work on something for a very long time to get to a result and then maybe possibly later find out that it doesn't work. And that's one of the things that happens in traditional advertising. That's changing. Uh, but by virtue of the way board games are designed, they are necessarily going through an ongoing agile process because that process is playtesting. And the game keeps evolving as it is being playtested. Uh, and it's not something that's always the case in other areas that I've worked in uh, in creative industries. So I think that's a really interesting area. Um, so we talked about how we celebrate Christmas and we talked about uh, games we're excited to play. And we talked about role playing games and storytelling. We talked about crowdfunding and how do you finance games and how do you start that kind of business. Uh, he is he, he started out with Kickstarter in the first place and Jamie raised uh, over three point two million dollars. Uh, a lot of that for his first scythe, but over multiple successful projects, he's had more and more people follow him. And since then, he's decided to move away from crowdfunding, but he's experimenting with different uh, formats, which is all really fascinating. And we talk a little bit about that during the interview. So uh, a couple more things. If you enjoy the show, you can uh, find, well, it'd be great if you could post a review, basically, is where I was going. If you can post a review, give us a rating for the show that helps other people listen to it, share it with a friend, uh, all the information you can find. I mean, you can go in, on your podcast, favorite podcasting app on your iPhone or on your Android phone, whichever app you use, and give it a rating or review. It helps other people find the show. You can find the rest of the episodes or more about what I do uh, as a brand and marketing consultant. And I'm spending time over the Christmas season and winter season redoing my whole website. So I'm spending time writing and really uh, wanting to be rigorous about the way that I'm describing my products and services. What What is it that I do as a brand strategy consultant? Uh, and what types of businesses do I do it for? Why would you call me? And at what point would you call me? So I'm laying out more things um, and writing and thinking about how I formulate that at the moment. But you can find all of that in the, the old clunky site that it is right now at icecreamforeveryone.net. That's uh, www, everything spelled out, ice cream, like an ice cream for everyone.net. You can find me on Twitter at IC, letters I, C, Willem, W-I-L-L-E-M. You can give me a shout out there. Anything that you do, even if it's the, the rating and the reviews are awesome, but even if it's like tweeting at me or posting a comment on Facebook, there's the ice cream for everyone page on Facebook. It makes a huge difference and it's hugely encouraging for me if I hear that Rather than the anonymous numbers that I see on my stats, uh, media hosting statistics to see how many people are downloading an episode, for somebody to say, hey, I really enjoyed this. Hey, keep going. It makes a hell of a difference. Uh, so as I said, it was a little bit of a slow season this year, but uh, I'm gearing things up so that I'm uh, to be a lot more consistent next year. And I'm looking for guests at the moment. Uh, the last couple of episodes were Actually, no, they weren't because we had the ski. I was going to say it was very board game design oriented, but not necessarily. We had a little bit of everything, actually. Um, so anyway, I think at this point I'm starting to ramble. I am just coming back from a couple of days in New York just for a little bit of quick update about what I'm up to. had a fantastic time walking around, catching up with friends, really inspiring conversations with both professionals in the digital and creative industry and with friends and my own questioning about what I'm up to. Um, 
and uh, I came back really rich and I walked all around town. I hadn't been to New York in 12 years. I had a lot of pizza and I had bagels. I had a pastrami sandwich at Cat's Deli, which was out of this world. Absolutely delicious. And I'm coming back in, back in Chicago, even though the weather is a bit dreary. I'm pretty invigorated and inspired. And I'm looking forward to Christmas. I'm going to be going to Paris. I'm going to be catching up with a lot of friends over there. Hopefully some time for board games as well. And I'm going to be going on a ski trip in the Alps. And I'm planning a big ski trip which uh, for January, February. So that's what hap- what's happening with me. And um, without further ado, on my conversation with Jamie Stegmaier of Stonemaier Games. Enjoy. Hi, Jamie. Welcome to the show. Hey, thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. Thank you for, so much for saying yes and for making yourself available. I feel I, I felt quite honored to be talking to you know really really great uh, game designer that I ever, that I love very much. I appreciate the games of it for least. So, well, thank yeah, you. It's cool. I appreciate. Yeah, that. you're welcome. You're welcome. Um, so I thought so we're we're talking uh, we're having our conversation at the very end of November, coming into well just after Thanksgiving and coming into the Christmas holidays. Mm-hmm. So and I'm going to be publishing this in December, just before the holidays. So I thought talking about the holidays and of Christmas might be a good way to go around in the conversation because I know that it's a big, if not the biggest part of the year for all toys and games and manufacturers. And I was wondering if it's the same thing for the area of hobby games and for, for Stonemaier games as well. Yeah, it is definitely a very, very big part of the year um, that we have to plan ahead for. I don't think consumers often think about this, but we have to think about the holidays as early as like April. So I have to be planning my whatever games I want to release and whatever reprints, the quantities. I need to start working on that in, in April and May. Right. Yeah. And what kinds of what kinds of indications do you get in April and May or May to try to figure out what kind of quantities you might need for Christmas? You know, it's a, it's mostly a guessing game. I can use historical yeah. trends based on what we sold the previous year, but uh moods and, and so many factors can change from year to year, especially in the game industry when, when people get excited about the new games and not as excited about older games. But that can change right. in the holiday season where you might want to share something you love with someone else in the gifts gift yeah. giving season. So it's really tough to estimate. We, we just have to, part of it is looking at our budget and part of it is talking to distributors and a big part of it is just guessing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Thank you. Well, and talking about Christmas, I usually, I mean, I actually just jumped right into that particular thing because, uh, well, now that I know that it, this might not even be a concern because if you you might have rolled the dice already back in the spring for this season, yeah, uh, in terms of what's available or not. But um, how do you celebrate? Have you done anything for celebrating Thanksgiving? And do you have a usual traditional way you celebrate Christmas? Yeah, I uh, traditionally I spend Thanksgiving with friends here in St. Louis, where I am, St. Louis, Missouri. And I traditionally go home for uh, Christmas. I, I celebrate. I'm, I'm Catholic, so I celebrate Christmas with my my family in Virginia, where I grew up. So okay. I, that's what I'll be doing this year. I, I did Thanksgiving last week with friends, and then Christmas I'll go home. Yeah. What about you? I uh, I was in Sri Lanka for Christmas. Uh, Thanksgiving. Sorry. Mm-hmm. Uh, my older brother lives in Sri Lanka, so it was a great opportunity to go and visit him and spend some time with my niece and nephew. Uh, so it was a tropical, uh, tropical Thanksgiving. And then for Christmas, I'm going to be celebrating. So we, we depend sometimes what well, we do, do it generally with family. 
but a year on and off with the whole family. And uh, this year I'm going to Paris and I'm going to spend it with my younger brother's uh, in-laws and their children oh. uh, who live in the countryside not far off from Paris. That's great. So I, I grew up in France. Uh, so that's how most of my siblings, my parents are in the south of France. And one of them and one of my other siblings in Sri Lanka and I'm in Chicago. I actually spent where I moved here a couple of years ago. In 2002, I spent my Christmas with my family in Paris and Mont, I don't know how you said it in French, but Montpelier in France. Montpellier. Montpellier. Yeah. My sister was studying. Yeah, abroad. that's very close to where my parents oh. are. My parents are in Papineau. Okay. Sorry, I interrupted. Yeah, that's a beautiful place. Your sister studied over my, there? My sister studied in, in Montpellier. And uh, so we split time between France and Montpellier. I actually really love Montpellier. It was a very nice, cozy, uh, what do you call it, a yeah. town, a city? I'm not sure. It's like somewhere in between. I think the yeah. whole, it's like maybe 500,000 people or something. Yeah. A little bit less than that, I would imagine. Like around that, if you count the whole like outer city right. kind of thing. I guess after Paris, it felt cozy, even though there's 500,000. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Certainly feels a lot cozier. Yeah, yeah it's, it's a great little town. I don't know it actually very much, but I do have several friends who live over there. I've only been through briefly, and I, I mean, they deserve a little bit more exploration. Mm -hmm. the, the whole city center has been redone in the last few years as well. Yeah. So oh, yeah. that's a, a, nice part of the, a nice part of the world. That's great. Do you, do you get a lot of people buying games in France? Oh, Stonemaier games, I, I guess. We, we do. Yeah, we have a great partnership with Matago. And so Matago publishes okay. the French versions of... Pretty much all of our games at this point. Yeah, are you familiar with them? Not really, actually. I wasn't. I don't know what. I'll have to look them up and see what other games they publish. But of course, I mean, I, I suspected knowing that Europe is quite a large market yes. between Germany, France, and the UK, and and that the games that you tend to design tend to be quite Euro style games as well. Right. If I'm not mistaken, would you tend? Would you say yes? To I would. Or? Yeah, I would definitely agree with that. And France is one of the biggest markets in Europe for board games. Yeah. 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 Cool. So what did life look like uh, growing up? So you grew up in Virginia, what part of the countryside or in a city or? I grew up in the suburbs. So I grew up in a place called okay. Chesterfield, Virginia. Uh, the capital of Virginia is Richmond, which is a city right in the middle of the state. And Chesterfield is right outside. And uh, yeah, I grew up there. I was there um, all of my life leading up to when I went to college. And that's when I came out here to St. Louis. Right. Yeah. And how did the interest in games come around? You know, I think I, I, I got a little lucky because my parents uh, exposed me and my siblings to games when we were very young. So six, seven years old, it was a, we would get together as a family and play games like Millborn and Labyrinth and, and some like American games too, Monopoly. But I, I was getting like a pretty broad exposure to games from a young age and I, I really enjoyed playing them. Did you, did you play games when you were a little kid? Yeah, it did quite a lot. I, I, we we had labyrinth. Um, what else did we play? I didn't play so much with my parents. Tended to play with friends and uh, and with siblings, and then uh, got quickly into Hero Quest as a gateway game to get into tabletop role playing games more than anything oh, else. Oh, cool! Yeah. Uh, but well, actually, my parents did get me Stratego, and my grandfather plays a lot of chess. But I never really, really seriously got into chess. Uh -huh. I love Stratego. Um, I played that quite a bit. Yeah. Yeah, I, it was one I think I got. I was a little bit too young. I didn't really understand. I mean, I understood how it worked. I didn't really understand the appeal until later. Yeah. Just, it was like, didn't, if, so I, I, the way I remember it 
is I didn't really understand what the strategy was. I felt that it was just a guessing game to turn the pieces around. Oh, okay. It's like much later that I understood that you're supposed to, that the point was to remember what, the, what things were. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but I, th- I think I was, yeah, I was too young when I was trying that, that for, for the first time. Uh-huh. Or, or maybe just not really interested in that particular kind of game. Right, right. I still actually have my... And how about designing... Okay. Yeah. I was going to say, I still have my childhood copy of Stratego on my shelf here in St. Louis. Oh, you yeah, do? When my parents moved a few years ago. I, I grabbed that one off the shelf and it, the box is pretty ragged, but the, the game itself holds up. It's still pretty good. Yeah. yeah. Uh, that's funny. Well, well, the pieces are quite solid, I think. The plastic pieces, if I remember correctly, yeah. they're yeah. quite solid. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Interesting. And, and how did you get into designing games then? It almost went hand in hand uh, with playing games. So as a kid, I as early as I was playing games, six, seven, eight years old, I was also wanting to design my own. And so a lot of my early games were uh, like facsimiles. They were very similar to the games that I was playing. So I, you know, I played Monopoly and then I designed my own version of Monopoly. I played Scotland Yard and right. I designed my own version of Scotland Yard. And Oh, yeah, Scott Leonard was a game I played quite a bit. I like that. Yeah, that's a great game. I, that's another one that I've enjoyed yeah. as an adult, um, which surprised me that it held up as well. Oh, yeah? yeah? I haven't played that in a very long time, actually. I'd be curious to try that again. Yeah, yeah. Well, it, it plays fast. It plays about 45 minutes, and it's uh-huh. the it's just fun. It, we have a good time with it. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Um, so, and then obviously you probably had another job and I listened to a couple of other podcast interviews that you did in which you described the fact that you started working on the first game you did was, well, or at least published, uh, is Viticulture or, or did you have other games before that that you worked on? You might've had others, but the one, the big one that I know of is Viticulture. Yeah. I mean, I, I, all the, the games I designed for fun throughout my life, they're somewhere in a pile. Um, but they weren't, I never submitted them to a publisher. Viticulture was the first game where I said, I actually want to design this and uh, find a way to publish it. Either And, and in this case yeah. specifically, I, I wanted to pu- to work on Kickstarter with it. I, I, I loved the the idea of running a Kickstarter campaign for a game. And so I that was what I had in mind from the beginning when I was designing Viticulture. What got you particularly interested in the idea of a, of a Kickstarter? Saying so you, you loved the idea. I mean, was it the funding or the... I mean, the, the way you said it sounded like the running of it was interesting. Yes, for you. Yeah, uh, the the part of it was the entrepreneurship side of it. I, I I was excited about that, but the big thing for Kickstarter for me at the time and and still today, even though I don't use it anymore, was the idea of being able to have uh, being able to like know the names and even sometimes the faces of the people who were sharing my passion and enthusiasm for the same product. Like that just seemed wholly unique compared to working with like selling anything any other way when you don't actually get to have that one-on-one exposure with the customers. And when you get to have that creative, um, that creative passion shared with, with customers, it just seemed very unique in that way. Yeah. Have you backed many Kickstarter projects? That is really interesting. I have a few, I mean, nowhere near as many as you have, but uh, I have, I I think I'm like between 70 and 80 at this point. Uh, The vast majority of them being games. Uh Uh, but not only a few here, a few other kinds of projects here and there. And I agree with you. I, I really, really, I mean, it's addictive. I have to be very careful <laughs> with how much I spend time on Kickstarter because I have too much of a tendency to want to well, back right. projects. And now that they, for anybody who's listening, there's a new or recent feature, which I, I was asking for, 
which was the ability to follow creators mm-hmm. and get updates when they create new projects. Cause I felt like I was often missing out on things from creators. I, I yeah. like, uh, except that now it's a different problem. <laughs> like I have to force myself to ignore some of the things that are coming through because I'm getting too many exciting updates and quite possibly a few times backing things where, you know, probably it's slightly unreasonable from a financial perspective to, put, to be putting so much money into certain things that I'm like, oh my God, take my money. It sounds so exciting. <laughs> um, <laughs> like that. Uh, and uh, and at the same time, and, and, I, and I think it's fantastic. I mean, I had, I, Luke Crane was on the on the podcast and it was a really, really exciting conversation. I think it's it's interesting and you've, you've written about this as well. Uh, I think it's a fascinating platform democratizing and bringing back patronage uh and at the same time it raises a lot of questions and the way that it's worked out raises a lot of questions anything and these are things that you've talked about so feel free to interject at any time but like whether a product is finished or not with all the stretch goals going through uh whether some publishers are using this as a way to do pre-orders when they wouldn't necessarily have to or shouldn't uh I have so podcast. I have a podcast, or there's a podcast in which I sometimes contribute with friends in uh, in mm-hmm. France. Uh, that one is very much more about tabletop uh, role playing games. Um, but there's also there's a lot of talk about tabletop role playing games, crowdfunding projects, and from their perspective in France, and they talk about, in their opinion, a lot of businesses that are abusing people or putting things that are too expensive. On another hand, I'm always willing to put the benefit of the doubt because I'm like, well, you don't know what kind of financials they're dealing with. So how would you know whether it's fair or not? If people are willing to yeah. pay for it, then why not? Um, I, and, and anything in between. So I don't know. It's just a, it's just a, a fascinating kind of thing. And, then, and also, it was really interesting to find out that you are still talking quite a lot about Kickstarter, but you're no longer using it. Is that right? That is, yeah, yeah. I'm still fascinated by the platform, and I I learned so much from running the the eight campaigns that I ran. Like that, those experiences still impact yeah. a lot of the decisions I make, and so I still want to mm. feel immersed in that that culture, that world, um, as I as I use other methods to to uh, sell our games. Yeah. And do you, was there any particular one reason or a couple of things that you're willing to share that led the idea of uh, stopping the public crowdfunding type of platform and where are you going next or have, if you're satisfied with the choice so far? Yeah. That's three <laughs> questions. Sorry, I have a tendency to ask too many at once. But. Yeah. Um, so our, the last campaign I ran was a game for a game called Scythe. That's the game that we're probably the most well known for. Uh, that was in that ended a little over three years ago in November of 2015, and we delivered it a few months later. Like we we entered production right away. We fulfilled it in uh, May, June, July of 2016, and that's when I started to question whether we should do it again. And the main three reasons were one, um, uh, shipping and fulfillment risks. I use a, a system of fulfillment where I have uh, containers of games sent to fulfillment centers around the world. So that like uh, a company in in France can fill all the orders in Europe and a company in Australia can fill all the orders in in Australia. Um, And many of those partnerships worked out, but some of them them unexpectedly didn't. And we had companies sending thousands of games packaged very poorly or without tracking numbers. Um, And, you know, when you're when you're shipping out a dozen games, 
that's not that big of a deal. But if you're shipping 2,000 games within Europe and all of them are packaged poorly, it's a big problem. And so that became an issue. Um, it, again, and none of these are Kickstarter's fault. These are these are things that are kind of tangentially related to Kickstarter. One is time. Running a planning and running a Kickstarter takes a ton of time. And I was getting to the point in my company where, yeah, it's a. I, I am the only person that works full time at my company, and I I had to make a decision: Do I still want to continue to do this, devote a significant amount of my time to Kickstarter, or do I want to diversify my time? And uh, the last reason was. Uh, it was, it was there. I mean, there a couple other reasons. One was like relationships with distributors, retailers, and another was kind of just the the emotional toll of a Kickstarter, of a Kickstarter, which I consistently um, underestimated. But it really hit me on that one in particular, uh, and I needed to take a step back. Yeah, and I've heard that from yeah. other people on the time and the emotional toll. Uh, I, I, yeah, I've heard that from several other creators that at the end of it, you just kind of you know collapse, <laughs> kind of probably exaggerating slightly, yeah. but. The, the serious, at the very least, lack of sleep and following things through and trying to make everything happen at the same right. time. It sounds both very, very exciting, but certainly would be very taxing at the same time. Yeah. yeah. And that comes and goes too. It's not just, it is at the end of the project, but it's also during the fulfillment process is a, is a very stressful time in particular. Um, yeah. Yeah. And so we just, we decided to move away from it. Yeah. So it's quite a lot to be delivering. Right. Yeah, totally understand. And it, it's reminding me, looping back to the original idea, talking about um, people as not not as numbers and the exciting part of being directly related to the community of people who are fans of a particular product or category, in this mm -hmm. case, games. Uh, and how, so I, you know, for somebody like me who works in marketing and advertising and who does strategy and communications for brands, uh, I'm supposed to be, my role is supposed to be to link people and to remind people that we're not just dealing with abstract numbers. We are dealing with actual people at the other end, buying the products and services that we're trying right. to market. Um, but it's always a little bit difficult not to keep it at abstractions because there's a level where it's kind of easier to deal with numbers rather than dealing with the fact that these are actual people because many times some of the concerns from a, from a big brand or company wanting to sell their wares is, that uh, they're trying to find the lowest common or the broadest common denominator that's going to appeal as a message to people for you know whatever they want to say about the product to mm -hmm. sell it. Um, so, so yeah, I think it's really really important to keep in mind what people are about, and at the same time, that would probably take time away from what you're supposed to be doing to run your business, as well as not, let alone like the time to be designing right, an actual right. game. Yeah. So, I mean, that was a lot of just me speaking. I don't know if you have any ideas or thoughts or let's say actually here would be the question. Did you find inspiring and did it lead to new ideas for designing better products to be directly in contact? With oh, yes, community? absolutely. Yeah. Um, and even. Yeah, that's one of those things that I've tried to carry over to the, the post Kickstarter world and that uh, getting the ideas and feedback and opinions of of a, a broad range of people as we're developing products, mostly as play testers, but also in other ways. Um, and also really just listening a lot. Like there are a lot of conversations I follow online or, or blog blogs and podcasts like yours and, and YouTube channels where I'm just, I kind of just listen in to see what people are 
thinking about and what people are talking about and having those things impact my games. Um, yeah, I, I try not to operate in a bubble. I try to try to keep my keep an open mind about a lot of things. Are there other areas that you tend to keep an eye on that uh, inspire or inform some of your game design? And I mean other areas like beyond or outside of gaming. Um, that's a good question. Yeah, I I do I consume a fair amount of fiction in different ways. Uh, fiction in terms of uh, novels, I, I I read every night. I go to a lot of movies. I love movies. I watch some fictional television shows as well. Usually, that uh, the fiction that I consume can in, might inspire ideas with uh, the themes of my games, but not necessarily the mechanisms of my games. Usually it's the, the thematic inspirations that come from them. Yeah, okay. And the mechanic, well, it would make sense. I would imagine the mechanics and mechanisms of games come from more interactions within, well, with other game designers and, well, possibly playing games. Oh yeah, that's well. probably the biggest part. I do, I do watch a lot of reviews and read a lot of reviews and I learn from that for sure. But um, I also play a, a lot of games. Um, uh, both because I love games, but I'm always like part of my mind is always kind of listening in and trying to figure out what I can learn from from whatever game I'm playing at the time. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, and in terms of playing game, you mentioned playtesting, which is something that I find really fascinating. In, and I, I don't well, I see this coming around quite a lot in game design, and I don't know how much it's a big portion of other types of design. It comes around in user experience design and website design, but it's often something that in areas I've worked in where we constantly think we've, we don't have enough access to having mm -hmm. testing. Uh, but at, but playtesting for games seems to be an integral part of being able to have a uh, the best product possible, yeah. I would say. Um, so when it's, it's even more so... I don't know. It seems like more so than other things that I've seen designer created, a large portion coming through. I'm not sorry. I'm sorry. I'm just having trouble putting my question together. It seems like there's a lot of playtesting all the way through the creation and design process, where there are some other things like a website might be almost all the way done before you have it. Yeah, tested. that's an interesting observation. You're right. Is that? Is yeah, that it is a little different. Right? Um, yeah, you're right. I had never thought about that way, but with a lot of other product development, you do. You spend a lot of time in almost in isolation working on it, and then at the very end, you test it yes. just to make sure it works. Whereas with games, yes, it, yeah, it, it, with games, I I'm play testing. It, with games, the human element is so important to it that no matter how I think the game will play out in my head, it it always plays out differently with real people. And so I try to get it to the table early and often with my business partner, and then with. Uh, Local friends, right. I play test it a lot locally until I make sure it's fun enough to share with other people. And then I open it up to blind playtesting. And I usually do three to four waves of blind playtesting, which for anyone who's listening to this who doesn't know what that is, that's when I send the files yeah. of a game uh, to different people around the world that I trust to keep it a secret. And those people test it with their friends using the rule book uh, as is. And so they're, they're not only testing the game to see if it's fun and balanced, and functional, but they're also testing the rule book to make sure it's clear. Yeah. Yeah. Which I think there's, that's another really, really interesting part of it. So you just, you're testing the design of everything, both of the game and of the rule book and mm -hmm. whether it's clear, whether it's, you know, laid out and everything, which I think is super interesting yeah. as well. Um, and the notion that, which I love, but it's just uh, something that's coming out now is the notion yeah. of fun and what is something that's fun 
with the group of people that you're playing with on how much is it that they're having fun versus uh, maybe something that you intended in the design and trying to find any dis any uh, correlations disparity between okay this is what I intend to create and this person is just not really enjoying that particular thing I intend to create or um, I don't know what I intend to create and they just like sorry I'm having trouble putting my questions together I'm thinking about things in a way that right now I haven't <laughs> thought about before <laughs> sorry um, anyway what do you, how do you find to how do you evaluate fun basically I think it's strange what I'm what I'm trying to say. When you're playtesting with friends at the very, at the, I don't know about the beginnings, but it's so well, as fun. you were kind of saying, fun is so subjective. So it's when when I'm playtesting a game, I'm certainly kind of uh, internalizing it and trying to figure out, hey, am I am I having fun with this? Um, am I smiling? Am I am I do I have moments where I feel clever or sneaky or however I I want to feel um, through the game? But yeah, paying attention to me, also looking around the table to see are other people engaged are they smiling are they are they looking like they feel clever and whatnot and then when it gets to the blind play testing stage it's a little bit more it's partly anecdotal then but there's also a uh i always ask play testers to rate the game to say just so i can track that number over multiple play tests so it's a it's a little bit more uh quantitative at that point whether or not they're having fun it kind of i, I rely on other people to to be introspective in that way and to figure out to ask themselves am i having fun by doing this yeah, it's an interesting one because at the end of the session, if you're asked questions, then necessarily you start to have to, mm -hmm. to think about it. And uh, even though the fun is kind of visceral, which, which is reminding me of the last time that happened just a few weeks ago. So as I was looking into the games uh, that you published, I met uh, one of the people who designed the game that you published uh, between oh, two yeah. cities. Yeah. I met Ben. Um, yeah, and we, we, he was playtesting another game he's working on at the local game shop where I go to in Chicago from time to time to play, well, as much as possible mm -hmm. weekly, but not always, um, to play a variety of games. So it's just uh, also funny to notice that it's a small world when you start getting into different communities. Yeah, it's been like fun that. to work with Ben. Ben and his uh, design partner, Matthew, they it's need to see them evolve as designers, as, as I have hopefully as well, because they, um, with Between Two Cities, they were very, very data-driven. They wanted everything to be perfectly balanced based on the data. And they still are, but I've gotten them a, a little bit to look a little bit more at um, what feels balanced to the players, even though mathematically it may not be perfectly balanced. Kind of that idea that if something feels overpowered, even if it actually isn't overpowered, you, you need to respect how playtesters are feeling in that moment and and take that into consideration as you figure out the balance of the game. So that's been really neat. That's been good for me to work on and, and neat to, to work on with Ben and Matthew. Yeah. That, that is also another fascinating notion that I've heard about before and I still don't know. I mean, there's probably a lot more conversations you can go around. Um, can, can go around that. I don't even know exactly what to say about it, about this idea that something, so there's looking for balance in a game and what people <laughs> feel about it. Uh, even though it's really, really difficult to evaluate in any kind of objective fashion, just like uh, just like feeling what what is fun or not and what right. works or not. So, actually, just this is leading me to another question. This is slightly slightly off field, but it's a way to maybe segue and back to the Christmas question. I was talking with somebody about games, and uh, I don't know if you play. Well, you did say you mentioned play games yeah. with family and Christmas. Um, how do you get people to, or how do you talk about? Because the kind of games that you publish 
are uh, they're not necessarily very easy or handle to handle. Like I mean, Scythe, the biggest game that you're known for, mm-hmm. I really really loved. But I also played for the first time, and through half the game, I was like, I have so many different options. I have no, I don't really know exactly what's going to make a difference in trying to get me to the right place, and I don't know what other people are doing. I have no idea how to yeah. evaluate all of it. Uh, but I definitely wanted to play again at the end of it. So anyway, going from a traditional group of people that would play, say, Monopoly, for example, mm-hmm. and be used to that, and trying to get them to play other games that I might find more interesting, um, where do you start? Uh, on Do you have go-to kind of gateway in-between games, or do you have any other methods to recommend or, or play different kinds of games? Well, I, I try to keep the other person in mind. So it might... It, often depends yeah. on uh, not just their level of experience, but also what makes them excited. So you might find somebody who has only played yeah. Monopoly, but they love a certain theme. And even though the whatever that theme is, like Viticulture, the wine-making theme, you might have someone who loves wine. Yes. And so even though that Viticulture isn't really a gateway game, they might engage better with that than, uh, than Ticket to Ride because they don't care about trains. Whereas for a lot of people, Ticket, Ticket to Ride, I think, is a right. good gateway game for uh, for new gamers. Um, and cooperative games have also found, yes, found work well. Because that way you're working together and you can, you're can you helping everyone all the time throughout the cooperative game. Mm. Do you have a recommendation in cooperative games from a Christmas gift? Well, you know, that's a good question. I'll mention a few. So every year I bring home a few games that I want to introduce to my family. And I try to keep this in mind. I try to find games that are pretty easy to teach, pretty easy to get to the table. Uh, they... The the people I play with, like my family members, they have played games, and some of them are more average gamers than others. Mm-hmm. But like this Christmas, I'm going to bring home The Mind, which is a very simple cooperative game. Have you played that? Uh, no, um, I haven't. I haven't heard Mind, of it. It's, it's a game, it sounds so simple. Basically, players have uh, cards in their hand, and you're, they're numbered 1 through 100, and you are trying to lay them down in order on the table. Uh, but you cannot communicate in any way. And so... these kind of these interesting things evolve over the course of the game as you're trying to make sure you put these cards down in the right order, but you can't, you can't talk about it. You can't even, you know, so that, that'll be a fun one to play. I'm going to bring home reef. Um, That's from the people who made Azul. I think that's probably their most famous game. Yeah. Uh, I've seen reef and I haven't played it yet. Yeah. Yeah, It it is beautiful. And, And if you can, I like finding games that have components that, that look great on the table. That's another way to, get someone into into games that they they like picking up the pieces and looking mm-hmm. at it. So I think those two I might bring home Downforce too. Have you played Downforce? I have not. It's no. a what it's a it's a racing game uh, where you're, you're basically just racing cars around a track one time and you're playing cards that have different colors on them that move the different cars that correspond with those colors. And so it is a competitive game but uh, there's a real fun element of helping each other throughout the game because you're trying to move the other cars like out of the way of your car so you can get through. And it's very simple to learn and play like these other games that I've mentioned. Yeah. Cool. Perfect. Anything else that you have either on your, uh, well, start on anything that you have on your side this, this year, whether games um, or not? There are a few games. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I actually, I have a few games on my shelf that I just need to play. You know, for me, actually, I'll, I'll answer it this way. This is a little different for me. A bigger present than someone mm-hmm. giving me a game would be for someone to take a game off my shelf, learn the rules, and teach me that game. 
uh, because I don't always have time to, to learn the rules to games anymore, but there are games that I want to play. And so I, I have to decide, okay, do I want to spend two hours of my workday learning a game that I want to play? Or maybe a friend could learn those rules for me. I would love that. Yeah. That's great. That's great. Absolutely. And you do you, do you, you still play regularly, Yeah, I host right? a weekly Wednesday game night where we very rarely play my games. We play a lot of other games from other designers and publishers. And then usually we meet up um, – a couple weekends a month to play games and then usually we have a campaign game going to as well and, and that's a, a different day every week but like a legacy the, those legacy style yeah. games like yeah that, so or... we did pandemic legacy this past year we did uh the rise mm -hmm. of fenris which is a scythe expansion and then we did the rise of queensdale which is not related to the rise of fenris but it's just another legacy campaign game have you played any of those uh, like ongoing games that you played? I haven't. No, I haven't. I, I've heard about. I've heard about them a lot. It's just, uh, yeah, I, I haven't got round to it. I've, um, I've been just going back, going to that regular game group and uh, with, at the shop in Chicago. But there's also, I've not been here for that long. So in Chicago, okay. as in, so I don't have like a regular group to be playing with any particular right. game right now. So that's one of the things I'm working on and looking for, just a regular group of people to be playing with. So start slowly getting to know people from the, the gaming night at the... Well, and that is shop. a challenge that I think anyone faces for the campaign game. Can you, like, can you get the same group of people together for once a week for two months in a row? That's a big commitment for anyone. It is, and it's uh, it's something that I'm seeing and uh, I'm experiencing already wanting to, because uh, on the tabletop right. role-playing game side of things, so... Working on getting a group together, and um, yeah, it's it's an interesting kind of challenge on trying to find the right kind of people that you want to hang out with, mm -hmm. that you that like to play the same style of game, that you want to have over at your house or or at yeah. their house like that. So, and also live conveniently close and are available, yeah. <laughs> which is an interesting combination of things in the midst of being a little bit older and busier and have other commitments, work, and I've everything heard, else. I don't know if you've experienced this, but I've heard that um, more and more role players are playing online uh, over Skype yes. with sometimes friends, but sometimes maybe just uh, people that they've ended up connecting with around the world. Have you, have you ever tried that? I have. I've tried that, and I've had a few sessions here and there, but okay. nothing sustained, um, partly because I haven't really yeah. pursued it, uh, like just just because I, I have I just put it to the side and haven't really thought about it, uh, and I I've had several conversations with other friends about that. I've found experience. I mean, it works fairly well to be playing via video, any kind of video conferencing mm -hmm. platform. Uh, one of the benefits that I've found, and I've, I've, I've talked to other friends who kind of agree, is that you you can tend to have shorter, very focused sessions. Uh, because because you're not really hanging out in real life, you're focusing more on mm -hmm. the actual game. Uh, but on the downside, it's kind of like you lose a lot from the social interaction and the fun right. of being together. Um, so so they're shorter sessions, but it's not that they're less interesting. They can be very interesting. They can be fun. But it's, I mean, a large just like you were saying earlier, a large part of the fun uh, for board games and any kind of gaming activity is to yeah. be together. So you can still fulfill a certain part of it being doing a video conference, but I, I think it loses something that I, for me, is very important in gaming, which is just hanging yeah, out together. That's a good point. 
So, so yeah. So actually, t- talking about um, d- actually, did you play any role playing games? Is that been any been ever been part of your interest? Or I played like- very few as as a teenager. I think I played the Star Wars okay. role playing game once or twice with friends, and I think that might be about it. There might be one other one I'm forgetting now, but not definitely not on a regular basis. Yeah, right. And uh, so, so another thing that is just find, kind of finding interesting because the uh, anyway, your style of games is more strategic Euro yeah. style games, right? Uh, and then there's the what's usually considered the more American style games, and there's been more and more of those quite strongly narrative, even role playing game ish uh, type of board games that have been borrowing from both. I don't know what you did. You notice that as a as a is that is that a growing trend? And I was rem- I was wondering if those kind of replaced uh, board role playing games for some people. Or I think, think? Um, yeah, there's certainly a number of designers who have tried to incorporate that level of story and immersion in um, tabletop games. For me, the the example that I love the most, and this is actually my favorite game, is a game called Time Stories. Have you played that? Time no, Stories is a uh, it's it's a tabletop cooperative game um, that's played in modules. So you buy like the the main box of Time Stories. It comes with one module, and then every few months they'll come out with a new module, like a new adventure where you go back in time and you do something. And uh, the story is told through uh, first person images and through some amount of text. But it has. From what I can recall from role playing, it has some. It evokes some of the feelings of role playing, even though there's no moderator needed, no uh, dungeon master. The game is kind of playing against you. Um, but yeah, I, I really enjoyed my experience with Time Stories. So that uh, I can I can see that in other games where designers have tried to incorporate these story elements into games. Cool. Thank you very much. I'll yeah. check that out. That's awesome. And 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 equally, there's a lot of trends moving around in role playing games about experimenting with a much shorter mm-hmm. formats um formats without a game master things that are just experimental or um or storytelling ish in nature or even just some things that i would consider to be collaborative creations exercises with have you heard of microscope no, no I haven't heard. how does that work so Microscope is a, a it's a kind of role playing game about telling the story of a um, aeon spanning empire, okay. let's say, and so you, so you just write little bits of pieces on paper and you choose at the beginning of the game like what kind of style of story this is going to be, uh, or what's the scale so. And that's why it's called microscope is because you're, you're going on scale of stories between the macro, very, very mm-hmm. big events, all the way to playing one interaction between two people that may or may not have an impact to the overall story. So like when I played it, we, uh, we said, okay, we're, we're playing the story of uh, the moment between the moment um, earth collapsed and some colony ships are going for the stars all the way to the coronation of a galactic empire however many years later uh-huh. like a long time um and it's kind of weird so you put these papers and each one of those represent okay. events and then it goes around the table and players can decide whether these events at what scale of these events going to happen are they going to be happening at the level of conversation between two people or is it going to be describing a uh, a giant battle that's really example? cool 
and um, yeah, it's it's just really interesting. So I, we finished it, and it was a very enjoyable moment. I had a hard time saying whether it was mm-hmm. fun. It was just like I think that was very very interesting. I'm not dying to do mm-hmm. another game again, but I would certainly play in the future sometime. And it just took like an hour and a bit, yeah. something like that. That's all. Yeah. So there's like some of those kinds of experiments that are quite interesting. That was called microscope. Okay. Microscope. Thank you. Yeah. Another one along those lines that's quite cool as well called Fiasco. I have, heard, I have played that? Fiasco once. Yeah. Yeah. So that had like a lot more noise around it. So that's just for those who haven't heard about Fiasco. It's a game about imagining that you're playing in a, a, a movie of the Coen brothers, right. essentially, like a Blood Simple or right. a Fargo. Um, so, you know, so you're playing characters in a thing that's got like everything worse that can happen keeps happening. We struggled like with that, that one because we had a, uh, a role-playing gamer introduce that to a group of us who had very little experience with role-playing games and were very used to Euro games. And so we kept trying to like, yeah. you know, solve it rather than just join in the story. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> yes, yeah. that makes total sense. That makes total sense. Uh, one other area I just wanted to have a quick chat about uh, is talking about structure in business. I saw you posted recently about how you structure yes. your days and uh, and that there's a lot generally out there on your website, your blog, your videos. That it seems you, you're just really, really impressively disciplined and structured around the way you work. And I thought I was, I was wondering if that came from anywhere in particular or if you, I don't know, if you credit that to any kind of particular training or. You know, I think it's 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 just been something I've uh, worked out over time. I think, um, mm. yeah, it, it, part of it is introspection. Yeah, because I, I've been running Stonemaier Games full time for five years now, and along the way, I've gone through periods where I've felt great about what I was doing, where I was being very productive, and times where I wasn't as productive and not feeling as good about what the company was doing or what I was doing, and so I've. Over time, I've figured out a, a method that works for me, so that I have, so that I can move the company forward on a daily basis, and also have uh, personal satisfaction, so that I can go to bed every night and, and be proud of what I did that day, and creative and satisfied in terms of uh, whatever creative pursuits I made time for that day. So it's it's just been a kind of a trial and error process for many years now. Yeah. Okay. And, and I saw that you had credited uh, at some point for that was more about the kind of activities that you take every day to create and maintain an audience and keep in touch with the community from a post from Seth Godin that I also somebody that I mean, who doesn't appreciate him? It's going to be difficult to find somebody who doesn't if they know, unless they yeah. don't know who it is. But um, anything that you built on top of that since and or what ways do you find to keep maintaining that kind of structure to keep um writing blog posts and publishing videos and interacting with people and, or even just organizing this kind of event of a, of a of recording for a podcast. Well, so it's almost two different answers. What, like the regular stuff that I do, yeah. like I, I write a blog post on Monday and Thursday. I do a YouTube video on Tuesday, Friday, and Sunday. I do a Facebook live on Wednesday. I do an Instagram every day when I wake up. So all these things, basically I've, uh, I've, gotten into the habit of doing things on a regular basis. Um, and so a lot of these things aren't even in my calendar anymore. And I'm very calendar oriented just because it's so ingrained in me now that on Monday, I need to have time to write a blog post. That's important to me. I want to do it on a regular basis. 
Um, the, the other side of it is like uh, the, our, the chat that we're having today. I've tried because of that structure that I have with other things, um, I'm able to leave time for things that are not necessarily unexpected because we planned ahead of time for this, but uh, things that aren't regular, things that aren't consistent. Um, so by having those regular things ironed out and I, I know how much time I need for them on certain days, it also means that I have time available for other things like this at different times of the day. Mm -hmm. mm. And how do you see things going forward? Because I would imagine that with all of these different things, plus managing the day to day of uh, a games publishing company, do you see the your role keep moving in terms of managing the company? And because I'm wondering if it gives you less time to actually design games, or would you prefer going into a, a direction that maybe handing over the management of the company so that you can focus on designing games? Yeah, I think a lot about that um, because it. it I, I I enjoy the way my job works now and has for a while, but uh, it has been at the sacrifice of other things that I've that I haven't prioritized as much. For example, uh, like romantic relationships, uh, kids. I don't I don't have any of those things. I've I prioritized the business ahead of those things. So I've ever if I ever decided to prioritize those things, I would need to change many of the ways that I run my business. Um, but until then, I. I, I, I'm pretty comfortable with the way the, the balance that I have in terms of uh, designing games, running the business, all the other the customer service, all the other stuff that I do. Okay, great, thank you. Um, I think I, so. We're going to start. I'm going to start wrapping up things. And there's a couple of I usually finish with a few cool down questions before. But before we get to that point, I just wanted to check with you because I think there was a was there an announcement, or do you have an announcement to, to coming up with any kind of new? Use for games. I don't know if there's anything that you have to announce right now, but I think there's things coming up. Is that we right? actually, or? yeah, just yesterday I announced the name of our uh, our new game. Um, <laughs> I'm slowly unveiling information about the game, but the name of the game is Wingspan. It's a game that I am not the designer okay. for, but I worked on it as a developer quite a bit, and I am the publisher of it. Um, so that that'll be a game that we'll do the full announcement in early January. But I'm starting to talk about it and share photos and things like that. So what's the distinction between the designer and the developer and the publisher? So it's the, the developer part, I'm not really clear. Yeah, and it's, it. that term is used differently in different industries. In the game industry, the designer is the one who comes up with the idea, who who um, who creates the not just the foundation of the game, but how the game works, how the game is fun, and starting to make the game balanced. The developer then comes in at a certain point when the, when the game is working pretty well, and they try to take it to the next level. They try to make it even more fun and even more balanced. Um, and, uh, and then... And Would that be correct to, to, um, to relate that to the work of an editor with a writer? Yes. Yeah. That would be a good a correlation. Or yeah. not so much. Okay. Cool. Thank you. And then publishing versus distribution. So publishing is just doing all the business stuff so that make sure that the Parts are printed and put together and all that? Uh, the or? publisher part is, yeah, that's part of it. The publisher is often the project manager of all these things. They're, they're managing, uh, you know, the, the deadlines and making sure everyone's staying motivated and paid and, um, and happy. And the publisher is also marketing the game, handling the customer service. They're, they're paying for everything. They are coordinating with the manufacturer um, uh, and many other roles as well. Uh, and in this case, I am the developer and the publisher, 
And sometimes I'm also the designer. When I do that, I usually try to have someone else act as the developer a little bit I, so I can have some checks and balances. Right. That makes sense. Okay. Thank you. Okay. So I was saying, yeah, we're just uh, being mindful of time. I want to bring this down to the cool down questions. So the ice cream for everyone podcast. So assuming you eat ice cream, do you have a favorite flavor? I do eat ice cream. Yeah. That, I, I have a, yeah, quite a penchant for eating ice cream. I love, um, it depend, It kind of depends on where I go. Like a place called Jenny's Ice Cream in St. Louis that I love back in, you know, you know, I love yeah. Jenny's. It's fantastic. Yeah, they have a few nice, parlors in, nice. in Chicago as well. Yeah, Jenny's I get, um, they have a Savannah Buttermint that I really love and they have a Darkest Chocolate. So usually when I go to Jenny's, I get those too. Usually I need something with chocolate in it. Yeah. What's your favorite flavor at Jenny's? Right. Do you have a favorite? Cool. Uh, at Jenny's, I think the latest that I try, I usually like the, uh, what is it called? Ooh, the yeah, brown butter good. almond brittle. Really like that one. And uh, the last one, I think last time I went, I tried one that was quite intriguing. And it was a uh, goat milk, goat milk cheesecake yeah. cherry, if I remember correctly. Yeah. <laughs> uh, for anybody who doesn't know them, it's, it's, a, it's quite a fancy parlor coming out of Columbus, Ohio. And uh, they're, they're pretty well known uh -huh. for quite original flavors. So... But the difficult part is to remember what they were because they just they're nothing they're usually nothing like oh actually this is reminding me last year when and i tried like they had a special on that was almost empty i loved it it was it was it was moonshine caramel and something mm, i can't sounds really remember good. what it was <laughs> sorry i thought i thought <laughs> i had it but it was really really good anyway doesn't matter um uh, so we talked about Santa. What do you? So yeah, you, you mentioned reading and watching. Is there anything? You, what reading, are you reading at the moment? Um, it's a, a book called The Three Body Problem. It's apparently like one of the best selling. It, it was a best selling book in China, and then it was translated, and it's it won the Hugo Science Fiction Award. I tried to get into it a few months ago, and I couldn't. I wasn't hooked, but someone kept people kept recommending it. So I'm I'm about fifty pages in right now. It's called the. I don't even actually know what it's about yet. That fifty pages, I'm still learning. But the three body problem—it's a Hugo winning science fiction book. Are you reading anything good right now? Any any good recommendations? Okay, good. I am uh, in the middle of—I hadn't read why well, that was like a little while ago. I'm in the middle of the Malazan Book of the Fallen, a fantasy epic oh, okay. from uh, Stephen Erickson, uh, and I'm reading. I've just started book five um, called. I can't remember what that one is called, but yeah. Anyway, the first one, the first one, anyway, is called Garden of the Moon, and it was last year. I hadn't read any fantasy books in quite a while, and I thought it'd be nice to get into like a big fantasy series, and it kept come popping up as consistently highly, highly regarded, and oh, nice. also it's complete. Yeah. <laughs> um, because sometimes I get excited about new books, and I'm like, I just want to make sure that the story is complete before you know before something else happens in the author's <laughs> life and they never finish the series. Um, and, uh, but yeah, this one is very, very good. The Malazan Book of the Fallen. It's, it's, it's like a huge, dark, epic story. And, and I read the, I was going to start the book and I read, I think it was a 10th anniversary edition and the author had a, a preface uh, intro. And I, it's, this whole thing started out as also a role-playing game um, okay. between a group of friends. 
and uh, he, he, he says basically that if apparently over the last 10 years as this book has been in existence, he's found that if people made it, so they drop the, they drop the reader bang in the middle of like a whole continent spanning thing. Um, and there's like tons going on. You have no idea what's going okay. on. You have no idea who all the characters are. And it seems that either people make it through the first hundred pages and they read the, uh -huh. they'll read the 10 chunky tomes or they'll drop <laughs> it as like, this is totally not for me. Forget it. So as given I'm at tome five, I'm assuming it is for me <laughs> and I'm probably going to make it all the way to the end. And I just finished another, I tend to alternate between like science fiction, mm -hmm. fantasy fiction and nonfiction. Uh, and the nonfiction, the last one I finished was really good called the gift. Oh, okay. Creativity and the Artist in the Modern World uh, uh, by a guy called Lewis Hyde, who's a poet and a researcher, I guess. Uh, it was a really interesting book about studying from different perspectives, uh, gifting and giving and how that exists in different types of human cultures and anthropology and uh, comparing that with market economy, with a gift economy and what it means if something has a mercantile value versus something that is given um and it's really really interesting yeah i really Thank enjoyed you. that very yeah. much so i recommend that one too cool uh last one so i think you mentioned well so what are you looking forward to play next uh, well you mentioned a couple of ones <laughs> that you have on your shelf that you'd really yeah. like somebody to learn the rules for you so in case you have somebody from your regular gaming group listening to this or you could just tell them next week i guess uh is there one that comes front of mind or that you can look up from on your shelf yeah, two i would say Maybe, maybe more than two. But Vindication is a fantasy-themed game that I just got from Kickstarter very recently. And uh, Via Nebula okay. is another one that people have recommended to me for a long time, and I just got it very recently. So I'm, I'm looking to try that as well. Excellent. Great. I think this is a good time to end. Um, Anything else you wanted to add or promote, or I think people can find you at Stonemeyer Games, and I'll, I'll add the links in the show notes. Um, yeah, yeah, that's the hub for everything. If you want to find my Twitter, or Instagram, Facebook, or anything, the Kickstarter lessons, they're all they're all there at StonemeyerGames.com. Awesome, and I really recommend checking it out. There's a big wealth of content, uh, all both on your YouTube videos and your blog posts that are really interesting about anything from game design to crowdfunding to Kickstarter. I've started digging and I was already down a rabbit hole and you have a lot of really interesting Thank things you. to yeah, share. I so I really that. appreciate that. Thank you. Cool. All right. Well, thank you very much for the conversation and uh, Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas to you too. Yeah, it was great to talk with you. All right, that's it. This is going to be it for the Ice Cream for Everyone podcast for 2018. However you celebrate, happy holidays. Uh, Merry Christmas for those who celebrate Christmas. Have a fantastic morning, day, evening, night. Don't forget to post a rating or review or to share this episode with somebody. Uh, keep in touch with me if you need anything from a brand and marketing perspective. If you have questions about your brand, if you're not sure how to do your marketing, feel free to contact me. I'm always happy to help, always happy to answer questions. And my email is villem, W-I-L-L-E-M, at icecreamforeveryone.net. Or you can find me on Twitter, Instagram, I see Willem on Twitter and Instagram, letters I and C for ice cream, uh, Willem, W-I-L-L-E-M. And that's about it for now. All right. Thank you. Bye. <laughs>